You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. In Romans chapter 4, verse 1, it says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised, but also but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into the existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, But for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truths of Romans chapter four. I pray that you would instill in us a deeper understanding of your plan of salvation and how it works itself out in our life. Uh, Father, I pray that our faith in you would increase this morning as we come to a better understanding of you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's go ahead and get right into Romans chapter 4. Just as a matter of review, we've looked at Romans chapter 1, which highlighted the condemnation of the heathen man, the the individual who is uh, grossly immoral, who, who lives a lifestyle that others would would look at and say, yes, that person is guilty before God. Yes, that person has done sinful things. Yes, that person should worry on the day of judgment. Romans chapter 2 highlights the moral man who we said is ultimately a hypocrite. He's the individual who says that other people are sinful, but fails to see that he also is sinful. Fails to see that he's guilty of a lot of the same things that the others are guilty of that he wants to judge. We also saw that the religious man, specifically the Hebrew, is guilty before God. We examine the fact in Romans 1 and 2 that God says the grounds of judgment are our works, that he will ultimately judge us based on our works, and that the rule he uses is how much knowledge do we have about God's law? So those that don't have the law are judged by the law that's written on their hearts. Those that do have the law are judged by the law that they have. What we find in Romans chapter 3 is that man is incapable of keeping those laws, incapable of keeping the revealed law, incapable of keeping the law written on his heart because of what we described as depravity. It's man's 
uh, inability to obey God due to original sin. We are born depraved. We're born guilty already. We're born with the, uh, without the capacity to do anything good. And so we, we term that depravity. Uh, it focuses not so much on how sinful we are, but how unholy we are. So all of mankind is depraved, even though from a human perspective, we would say more people maybe are sinful than others. Uh, we're all uh, falling short of any capacity to do good in the eyes of God. We also saw in Romans chapter 3 that Paul reveals how righteousness is available to us apart from the law. That it's through the work of Christ, his perfect life, his sacrificial death. It's through the work of Christ that God deals with our guilt problem by uh, satisfying God's wrath. We call that propitiation. We saw that uh, we are also justified through the work of Christ. Uh, that being uh, the, the, the legal act that, that Tyson did such a good job of last week describing to us. The legal act where we are declared perfect. We are declared righteous. We are declared right all the time uh, in legal standing before God because what Jesus has accomplished for us. And then Christ also deals with our bondage problem. He redeems us from sin. He saves us from that slavery and now makes us slaves to righteousness. We saw that in putting our faith and trust in Christ, it removes boasting, it eliminates any distinctions, it breaks down the walls of Jew and Gentile, and it ultimately establishes the law. And that leads us into chapter 4 and why Paul chooses to use Abraham as an example. Looking back there at the end of chapter 3, verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So Paul has described for us, we can't boast about salvation. We, we, uh, we don't have some that are saved because of their heritage and others that aren't. And we don't have anybody that's saved by the law. And Paul now wants to show us how that looks in real time by highlighting for us um, an example from the Old Testament. So in your notes there, why should we study chapter 4? It's an example of justification, but number one, it reveals a concrete example. It reveals a concrete example of how chapter 3 works in normal life. Up to this point, Paul has been discussing kind of an abstract idea of faith. He's been talking about faith. He's been talking about wrath. He's been talking about how we can escape God's wrath through faith, through the work of Christ. But it's been a lot of abstract ideas uh, without a real concrete example for us to see this applied to. And so Paul's going to give us a concrete example. He's going to highlight for us how Abraham was saved. And it's the example for all of us about how we too are to be saved. Secondly, it demonstrates how the Old and New Covenant reflect the same way of salvation. Now, if you think back to the Old and New Covenants, we talked about covenant theology. We described some of the differences in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, but the thing that remains the same is how an individual is saved. We don't see uh, different dispensations where God is working in man in different ways and that translates into potentially different ways of being saved. Instead, we see a consistent plan of salvation. We see a consistent plan of how to be uh, justified before God. This isn't a New Testament term. As we're going to see in Genesis 15, justification is an Old Testament concept as well. And that pattern of how to be justified in God's eyes is consistent in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And chapter 4 helps us to see that. And then number 3, it provides additional truth about justification to increase our faith in salvation. It provides additional truth about justification to increase our faith in salvation. We, we've defined faith before as trusting truth. So the more truth we can receive, the greater our faith is. That's how we grow in our faith. We, we give ourselves more truth to trust in. In Romans chapter 4, verse 23, But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Paul says, go back to Genesis 15. The words that Moses chose to use there were not just for Abraham. The words that God communicated to Abraham were not just for Abraham. 
Paul says they're meant for us in the new covenant. That they're meant for a purpose for us to see that our salvation is the same in the new covenant. In Psalm 78, 5 through 7, we also see this concept of um, the scriptures being used in a way uh, where additional truth is provided to us so that our faith can increase. In Psalm 78, verses 5 through 7. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandment. And then in Romans fifteen four. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So not only this morning is Romans 4 meant to encourage us, but Romans 4, looking back to Genesis 15, is meant to encourage us this morning. Because we begin to see in a deeper way that we fit into a plan that's been going on for thousands of years. And we get into that plan of redemption the same way that people did thousands and thousands of years ago. The consistent plan of how to be justified in God's sight. We see the example for us in Romans 4 in the life of Abraham. Now, why does Paul use Abraham as this example of justification? Why not pick another Old Testament example? Um, I think the only way the Jews... We're going to believe Paul as if his teachings applied to Abraham. I think Paul realized that. I think he, he kind of assessed the situation. He knew that he was speaking to Jews. He knew that he was called to Gentiles, but in being called to Gentiles, he was going through Jews. And he knew that the Jews were never going to believe this gospel unless they could wrap their minds around the fact that it applied to Abraham. Uh, number one, to show that justification by faith is as old as Judaism. Paul wants the Jewish people to see that this concept of justification is as old as Judaism. Um, that, that Abraham is the father of the Jewish race. He's the supreme example of a righteous man. And he's the perfect example for how to be justified in God's eyes through faith. It also shows us that uh, chapter 3 applies to everyone. That no one can boast in their salvation. Nobody can boast about their salvation. Including Abraham. It also shows us a deeper understanding of Abraham's salvation in Genesis 15.6. Genesis 15.6 says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul expounds upon that. Paul preaches a sermon in Romans chapter 4 on how to understand Genesis 15.6. And then last, he shows us that justification does not depend on outward signs, doesn't depend on family heritage, and it doesn't depend on good works. The same thing that he was showing us in chapter 3, he now applies to a real-life example. It's important to note, too, that Abraham is ultimately going to be justified before he was considered Jewish. So he's technically a Gentile being saved. And so ultimately Paul's saying, you get saved like a Gentile Jewish people because your perfect example of how to be saved the man was a Gentile. He, he, he didn't have this, this promise, this circumcision that, that uh, sets you apart from the Gentiles. He didn't have that yet, and yet he was justified in God's eyes. And so it ultimately, again, breaks down those family distinctions in regards to salvation, which applies to us today. It, it translates into the New Covenant, too, for us, that outward signs like baptism and the Lord's Supper don't save us, that being born into a Christian family doesn't save us, that, that growing up Christian and trying to be a good Christian boy or girl doesn't save us. That our performance doesn't earn our justification in God's eyes. So the same problems the Jewish people were having, we see happening here in the South. We see people that cling to their family heritage. I was raised in church. I was confirmed at an early age. Um, I, I was baptized when I was a child. I've, I've, I've put my my theology on a one God view, but it hasn't radically changed my life. People cling to these things just like the Jewish people were. And so this is relevant for us in our discussion of trying to evangelize this area that we're able to attack these same things in the same way that Paul did. All right, so in your notes there, the first thing that Paul wants to show an example of is the boasting aspect. 
that, that no one can boast about their salvation. Abraham cannot boast about salvation. Romans 4.1, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So there's two ways that we see here about how to receive righteousness. The first thing in your notes, ways to receive righteousness, you can earn it. You can earn righteousness, Paul suggests. He says there's a, there's a mindset, there's a concept about working for righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Underneath that, if salvation is based on works, then God owes us salvation. He owes us salvation. Now, if we're talking about righteousness being credited to our account, let's think in terms of that. Let's think, let's think now, let's move from legal perspective to financial perspective. Okay, so let's picture our bank account. If, if salvation is, is earned through works, then God owes us something. Okay, so I've got it set up at Trinity that I get paid twice a month and they direct deposit it to my account. Okay, so I work for two weeks and then I see money show up in my account. Now, I don't go to my employer every time and just, you know, overly thank them for the gift of money. Now, I'm thankful for my job, but I don't feel like I need to go thank the financial secretary every time she deposits money into my account because I'm owed that money, right? Like, I worked hard for two weeks. You owe me money, so I expect it to show up into my account. It's a direct deposit. So money is credited to my account, but I earned it through my hard work, through my effort. So Trinity is obligated to give it to me. Now, I'm thankful for it, but I don't feel like I have to be overly thankful for it because I worked for it. I earned it. Okay, so when salvation is viewed that way, God owes us salvation. He would credit it to our account. But not graciously, he would do so out of uh, duty, out of obligation. If salvation is based on works, then man can boast before God because of his obedience, Paul says. So he again reverts to this perspective that we can work our way to heaven. So we can earn righteousness before God. But then he presents the second way, the way of receiving righteousness that he's highlighted for us in chapter 3, and that's receiving it. So we can either, first of all, earn it or we can receive it. He says in verse five to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. If salvation is based on grace, then God earns our salvation and credits our account with righteousness. If salvation is based on grace, then God earns our salvation and credits our account with righteousness. Let me give you another example. When I went off to college, there was a big discussion with, with me and, and my mom and my dad about whether we could afford liberty or not. And I was convinced that God wanted me to go there. And so we worked it out to where I was going to get a job and I was going to work, uh, but it wasn't going to come close to paying my way. We were going to have to initially take out a loan, but my mom didn't want me to go into debt. And so she agreed to work for me. She was going to pick up extra jobs and she was going to deposit that money into my account to be used by me. And so uh, it was set up periodically every month. I would see money show up in my account that I had not earned. It was credited to my account by the bank on behalf of my mom's performance, on behalf of what my mom had done. And in those situations, I did feel very compelled to overly be thankful to my mom because I didn't earn that money. I didn't have a right to that money. I didn't deserve that money. My mom, in her, in her graciousness and her love towards me and wanting to do something that I was incapable of doing myself, she worked for me. And, and the bank credited that to my account. And so the money showed up as though I had earned it, but I had done nothing uh, in my own performance to, to deserve that money. So it's two different perspectives about how we earn what we need. I can work for it, and then somebody's due to give it to me. 
But then because of the love that my mom has for me, she gave me money. She credited money to my account that I had not earned, that she indeed, in fact, earned and gave it up to me. And that's what we see Christ doing. Christ earns righteousness. He obeys the law. He lives perfectly. And then he gives that righteousness to us so that we enjoy all the benefits of it without the work of it. Paul's saying there's two ways to get it. You can attempt to work for it. And if you were able to do that, God would owe you salvation. Or God can graciously give you salvation based on the work of Christ. Paul says this is how Abraham was saved. Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Brings us to the second point in verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? So second there, circumcision. Abraham did not get circumcised until after he was justified. Abraham did not get circumcised until after he was justified. We see that the timing doesn't work. Now, the Jewish people were all about circumcision. You have to be circumcised to be saved. And if you're not circumcised, you're not saved. There was even uh, extra biblical writings that alluded to the fact that circumcision was so necessary and it so guaranteed your salvation that there was a legend that Abraham actually sat at the foot or at the gates of hell and would not allow a circumcised man to be sent there. That it was such a guarantee of salvation that nobody who was circumcised would ever uh, grace the doorsteps of hell. But Paul says, think about it. The timing doesn't even work in Abraham's life for circumcision to be necessary for his salvation. He says, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Paul says, I'm telling you that I think Abraham was saved by faith, not by works and not by external ceremonies. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Let's go to Genesis 15:6. Now, again, I told you this morning, this is the second big event in Abraham's life where the covenant is discussed. I would say that it starts in chapter 12 when when he says, I'm calling you out. I want to make of you a great nation. You're going to bless the world. I'm going to give you many descendants. And God continues to clarify that special revelation. He continues to give Abraham more insight into how that's going to play out. And in Genesis 15, verse 1 This is, again, after uh, Abraham has helped rescue Lot from the bad kings. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you were able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, again. I would have probably grown up thinking that Abraham was saved when he first leaves his country and begins to respond to God. And that may be true. Like we're not given a definitive. This is when Abraham is is definitely saved and he wasn't saved before this. But this is the first time that we really have God communicating to Abraham or at least communicating to us through his word that Abraham has been justified. And Paul highlights this and says this wasn't just written for Abraham. It wasn't just written by Moses for the people at at that time. It was written for us. So it's definitely significant. And regardless if we think Abraham was saved before this, this incident definitely takes place before circumcision. If you flip through your Bible, you see that circumcision doesn't happen until chapter 17. It's at least 14 years later. So 14 years later, after Abraham is at least justified at this point, maybe he's justified before this, but at definite 
time here in history in Genesis 15, he's justified in God's eyes. It's 14 years later that God shows back up and uh, puts circumcision upon him as a sign and a seal of this covenant. So Paul says the timing doesn't work. The major Old Testament example of salvation happens prior to the Jewish race, prior to circumcision, prior to the law, prior to sacrifices. I think that's that's significant. I think those things come later. I don't think it's by accident. I think God allows those things to come later so that we can separate in our minds. Those things can't be what saves us. It wasn't Old Testament sacrifices that saved the children of Israel. There were people before that that got saved that didn't know about the sacrifices. Abraham saved before the law is given almost 500 years later. Over 500 years later, does Moses actually get the law? Circumcision comes 14 years later after his salvation. Paul's saying the timing doesn't work for you to think that those things are what saves. Those things come so far after Abraham's salvation. And he's the major example of salvation in the Old Testament. I put in my notes the first real New Testament example of someone joining Jesus in paradise. The first tangible person that we have that we know that joined Jesus in the afterlife is the thief on the cross. And he is saved without baptism, without church membership, and without ever taking the Lord's Supper. And I think that's significant for us in the New Testament. That these two major examples of salvation work without some of the things that we so often want to add to salvation. For the Jewish people, let's add circumcision, let's add the law, let's add sacrifices. Paul says, Abraham was saved before all those things. For us in the South, we want to add baptism. We want to add church membership. We want to add obedience to, to the law. Or we want to add Lord's Supper. Like These are things that you hear, confirmation class. These are things that we hear in this area that saves people. And in the New Testament, the first person that, that uh, probably joins Jesus after his death in the afterlife is a man who was never baptized, never joined a church, never partook of the Lord's Supper. And Jesus ultimately promises him that he'll be with him that day. This is important for our own faith. It assures us that these things are not necessary for salvation. Secondly, the purpose doesn't work. The timing doesn't work for circumcision and the purpose doesn't work. His circumcision was a sign or a seal of what he already possessed. Paul tells us this in chapter 4, verse 11. He says, think about what circumcision is. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be accounted to them as well. Paul says it's not an accident. It's not an accident that God didn't have him be circumcised right then and there in Genesis 15 or back in Genesis 12 when he leaves this country. If God had said, come out of your country, be circumcised, then, then, then it would be hard maybe to, to reason against circumcision being necessary. But instead, God in his sovereignty says, I'm going to justify you right here. and I'm going to communicate that in my word. And then 14 years later is when we're going to handle the circumcision thing. So that there's no question whether it had anything to do with your salvation. That it's an outward sign of what's already happened internally in you. His circumcision was given later on purpose to show that salvation works the same for all people. Works the same for all people. So boasting, excluded from Abraham. He can't boast because it's all based on faith. It's based on what God did, not him. Circumcision, he can't, he can't boast in his circumcision because the timing doesn't work and the purpose doesn't work for those things, or for that thing. And then third, the law. The law, Paul highlights the purpose of the law at the end of chapter 3. He shows what the law looks like in the life of Abraham and the role that it played. Verse 13 of chapter 4. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. 
As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Abraham was not saved by good works. So he can't boast about his salvation. He did not get circumcised until after he was justified. And he's not saved by good works. I told you earlier, he's justified uh, 500 years before the law was given. I think Paul reminds us, and Dan had asked about this, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. We see this discussed again in uh, Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Paul's saying Abraham wasn't even accountable to the law yet because it wasn't given. The only law that he was accountable to would have been the law written on his heart because he didn't have the law that you're saying is necessary for salvation. So where there is no law, there's no transgression. He's saying Abraham didn't have that law to even be applied to him. All he had was the, the law that everybody else had on his heart. Now that was enough to condemn him, as we've already said from Romans chapter 2. But Paul's downplaying the importance of the revealed law of Moses in the life of the Jewish person because he's saying people were saved before that law was ever given. All that law was designed to do was to point us to the fact that we fall so short of God's standard of righteousness. That's why the sacrifices are built into it. First thing there under the law, the law pays wages. The law pays wages and it depends on human performance. The law pays wages. It goes back to what we said earlier. If salvation is based on works, then God owes us salvation. And he deposits it into our account because we earned it. The law pays wages. It depends on human performance. Salvation by law. And you're going to want to write this down. Salvation by law. This is what it says. Salvation by law says, You shall obey my law, and I will bless you. Salvation by law means you shall obey my law and I will bless you. The focus is on what I do. You shall obey my law and I will bless you. You do it and I'll respond. I'll owe you for what you've done. That's what salvation by law says. Now, the only time that's really functioned that way, going back to our knowledge of the covenants, is back in the garden under the covenant of works that we would call it, where, where Adam had a responsibility to obey, and had he obeyed, he would have been given life. He would have had eternal life with God. But he fails. He disobeys. That causes the rest of humankind to be depraved. So none of us function under the covenant of works. What we find is that all we do in our working is earn death, because we know from Romans, as we'll see later on, that the wages of sin is death. So that's why Paul says in Romans 4. If the adherents of the law are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void for the law brings wrath. Paul says if we're talking about people working their way to salvation, then the whole thing gets scrapped. Because the only thing the law gives to us is wrath. It doesn't reward righteousness to anybody. Nobody can adhere to the law. Which means when you try to earn your righteousness, all you get is death. That's the wage that you've earned. So if we want to talk about what gets deposited into our account, the direct deposit that we earn at the end of the day is death because of our sin, because of our failure to be perfect. So salvation by law says you shall obey my law and I will bless you. The wages that we earn is death. Wrath is all that we get. And here's the reason for that. Works are never perfect. So in our best efforts, we're never perfect. Even if we ever got to the point where we could start being perfect. So let's say that you just really pull yourself up, really try to do your best, make some New Year's resolutions, and from here on out, I'm not going to mess up. Even if that were possible, your rest of your life perfection would not make up for the mistakes in the past. So works are never perfect. They never make up for past mistakes. They negate Christ's sacrifice. Because if, if salvation is possible outside of Christ's sacrifice, then God should have just expected us to get with the program. And it eclipses God's glory. 
Paul says, if you can work it, then God owes it to you. And it takes glory away from him. Paul says the way that he's designed this to work is that you can't earn it, that it all depends on Christ. You can't boast about it. And because of that, it results in our glorifying him versus our boasting before him. The law pays wages. Secondly, there under law, the gospel gives promises. The law pays. The gospel gives. It gives promises. It depends on God's performance. Salvation by grace says, I will bless you. Believe my promise. I will bless you. Believe my promise. The focus is on what God does. I will bless you. Believe my promise. Abraham is justified for believing the I wills that God gives him. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. God says, believe me. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You don't see any interaction where God says, do this, do this, do this. God doesn't say, go out and find a fertile woman so that I can give you babies. He doesn't say that you've got to do this. He says, I'm going to do this. You believe me. He doesn't say, if you go do these things, then I'll bless you. Then I'll owe you. Then I'll direct deposit your payment. God says, I'm going to do these things. And if you'll believe me and trust me, I'm going to put it in your account. There was was an element of faith that I had to leave and go to Liberty trusting that my mom was going to do what she said, that she was going to work these extra jobs. Because had I gotten up there and she decided not to, I would have had to come home because there wouldn't have been money to pay for the things that I needed. So there was an element of faith where I said, okay, I'm trusting that my mom's going to do what she's saying that she's going to do, that she's saying I will work these extra jobs. And when I get the money, I will give it to you. Because it could have been very easy for my mom to work the extra jobs and say, you know what, we need a new stove, we need a new this, we need a new that. Son, you're going to have to come home because I'm going to keep the money for myself. There was an element of faith where I had to say, mom's going to put that money in my account. And I'm going to need it because I can't earn it myself. The law gives, or the the law pays, the gospel gives. In Genesis chapter 12, where God calls Abraham and begins that initial discussion of the covenant. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. In Genesis 15. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven, the numbers of the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, you sh- so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God told Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Believe me. Abraham believed him. God counted it to him as righteousness. How justification works. All right, we've talked about this credit idea. Uh, The Greek word gets translated multiple ways. Best I could understand is that they didn't want it to become so repetitive that it lost meaning. But in doing that, it's kind of confused us at times. Um, Really, the term for justification is that idea of crediting. We see it in a human standpoint in Philemon verse 18. Uh, Paul talking um, to Philemon about Onesimus. He says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. So he's sending Onesimus back to Philemon. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. That's the Greek word there for what we're talking about with justification. Credit it to my account. Charge me for what he's done to you. Um, So that's the idea of of justification. Tyson went into that a lot last week, so I don't want to repeat what he's already effectively taught us. It's that idea of imputing or reckoning it to our account. Uh, We've seen in chapter 3 that God credited salvation in the Old Testament, knowing that Christ would pay for it in the New Testament. So 
in God's divine forbearance, he passed over former sins, Paul tells us in chapter 3, so that at the right time he could become the just justifier by paying for sin, by pouring wrath out on his son. So in the Old Testament, you have salvation credited to people. Uh, They enjoy all the benefits of it, and it gets paid for later. So the credit card concept, they get all the privileges of salvation in the Old Testament. It's paid for in the New Testament when Christ comes. There's two ways to understand uh, how our justification works, both negatively and positively. So first of all, negatively, God does not count our sins against us. So he should credit our account with death because of our sin. But negatively, God does not count our sins against us. He doesn't give us what we earned in our wages. In 2 Corinthians 5, 19, it says, That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So God doesn't count our sins against us. Psalm 32, 1-2, where Paul quotes from, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. So negatively, God does not count our sins against us. Positively, God does count righteousness to us. So he doesn't count our sin against us, but he does count righteousness to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Philippians 3.9, Paul wrestling with the idea of working for salvation or working for righteousness versus accepting Christ. He says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Tyson did a good job of explaining this last week, that faith is not a work in and of itself. It's simply the channel that we receive that righteousness through. It's the means of receiving the righteousness. Um, It would be like Christ offering the living water and telling us to come with our cups to receive that. It's the the vehicle that we receive it in. Uh, So you wouldn't drink uh, satisfying water and then boast about the fact that your cup did it. You would boast about the source. You would boast about the source. And so we don't boast even in our faith. Our faith is simply the channel that we receive justification uh, through. It's, it's the non-crediting of our sin. It's the crediting of Christ's righteousness to our account. Paul's highlighted that in chapter 3. He's showing us how it works in chapter 4. Who does God justify? Who does God justify? It's not something we boast about. It's not through circumcision or any other type of external sign. It's not through the law because the law would give us wrath. Uh, It's only through the gospel that we can receive uh, justification. It's only through the gospel that we can be made right in God's eyes. But who does God justify? Paul tells us in Romans 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So who does God justify? Those who are ungodly. That's the first part there. He justifies those who are ungodly. Now, that should go without saying, but Jesus said, I don't come to, to rescue those who are not sick. I come to rescue the sick. It's those who can see that they're ungodly. God can't save the, the, the hypocrite in Romans chapter 2 if all he can see is other people's sin, but he can't see his own sin. He will continue to progress to the day of judgment and think that his righteousness will count for uh, salvation. So it's the ungodly that, that, God's, that God justifies. Now, we're all ungodly. But it has to be those that see themselves as ungodly. And we're ungodly for, for multiple reasons. Um, we're, we're sinners by heritage, by participating with Adam in the garden. We're sinners by birth, according to Psalms 51. We were conceived in sin. And we're sinners by choice, James chapter 1. We're led astray by our own sinful desires. We choose to do sinful things. So we're condemned on three different levels. Because of Adam's sin, that's credited to our account. We're sinners by birth. They were born with a sin nature, and we make sinful choices. 
So we're ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. He also justifies those who stop working for their salvation. Paul says it's those or now to the one who does not work. It's those who stop depending on human performance. It's those that stop trusting themselves. And then thirdly, it's those who believe in a God who works. The one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. So God justifies the ungodly, those that stop working, and those that believe in a God who works. Now let's go back to Abraham and let's see how God saved Abraham. Now remember, the Jews thought that he had earned his salvation. Now there's a big difference between Abraham when God comes to him and the story starts with Abraham versus other people like Noah and uh, Job. Remember, like everybody was wicked. Noah seems to be following God. Uh, everybody seems to be wicked. God says, if you consider my servant Job. Like those guys were already following the revelation that they had about God. So they already had some level of faith. But what we find from the Old Testament is that Abraham was ungodly. He wasn't a follower of God. He wasn't a follower of Yahweh. He wasn't doing anything that warranted God to come call him to a new land. God didn't look out and say, man, everybody's wicked, except for Abraham and his family. That's who I'm going to choose. That's who the Jewish nation is going to be. That's who the Messiah is going to come from. Uh, in Joshua 24, 2. This is important because this really breaks down the, the Jewish concept that Abraham was saved prior to God calling him by good works. Joshua 24, 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. These guys were wicked, idolatrous people who were doing things their way. And God came down and said, I'm calling you out. I'm calling you out. I'm going to do something. I will do these things. Believe in me to do them. He doesn't come because Abraham's the best guy on the planet at the time. He doesn't single him out because of his faith. If he did, the Jewish people people could say, look, Abraham was blessed. He's the father of our nation because he was the only one following God at the time. He wasn't. He was like everybody else. He was sinful and wicked, just like all of us were when we were called to salvation. We weren't good people that had earned salvation and then God gives us the Holy Spirit. God came to us. He regenerated us. He called us through the gospel when we were wicked and sinful and enemies of him, just like he did Abraham. Abraham's the best example of salvation in the Old Testament. The Jewish people had it wrong in thinking that he was the best example of somebody working for salvation. Paul corrects their thinking and says, you're right. He is the best example of salvation and it works the same way as it does in the New Testament. He was saved by faith, number one. How God saved Abraham? First, by faith. Genesis fifteen six says that Abraham believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. Secondly, he was outwardly shown to be saved. Genesis 17, he was circumcised. For us, that's baptism. We outwardly show that we've been saved by getting baptized. Doesn't save us. But it shows everybody else that we're saved it didn't save Abraham, but it showed everybody else that he was in a covenant relationship with Yahweh. And then thirdly, he demonstrated his faith in action. Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac. It was the, the ultimate example, the ultimate test of whether he believed God or not. It's the, it's the example that James pulls out and says, see, Abraham was justified by his works. Now, he's not saved by his works, but his works come after he was justified, right? So again, it's important that Isaac wasn't born and then 
God telling Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice prior to him being justified. He was justified, then he was circumcised, and then he showed his faith by putting his trust in God when he told him to sacrifice Isaac. Um, let's look at Genesis 22. Well, let me read Romans 4, then we'll look at Genesis 22, Hebrews 11, and we'll, we'll wrap up chapter 4 here. Romans chapter 4 here at the end. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. All right, so let's go to Genesis 22. Abraham's been waiting years and years for this promise of Isaac to come. He tried to manipulate it through Hagar. God continued to affirm that I'm going to do this through your own child, through Sarah. Genesis 22:1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham gets his servants and Isaac together. They travel over to do this. The whole time, Abraham is trying to process what God is asking him to do. Verse 5, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. That's the first example that Abraham believed this was going to turn out okay. Because he tells his servants, we're both going over there to worship. We're both coming back. He doesn't clue in these people in any way that, that Isaac's going to be killed and that only one of them's coming back. He says, we're both going over there. We're both coming back. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son. Or, um, uh, yeah, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on his, Isaac's son. He took it in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went together. This is sign number two that Abraham believed that God was going to keep his promise. He doesn't begin to elaborate to Isaac, Isaac, you're the sacrifice. He says, God's going to provide something, buddy. Like, I don't know what, but when we get there, when the time's right, God's going to provide something because he can't kill you because you're the promised son. Like, this can't go through. And we learn from Hebrews, if it does go through, you're going to come back to life. Because we're both going back with the boys that came with us. That was Abraham's faith. And it was being demonstrated through this test of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, let's go over there. We sang about this this morning, these people who lived by faith. Abraham is mentioned in that chapter. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Skip down to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. We see Abraham's faith being lived out in that test. Paul highlights it for us in Romans 4 when he says that he believed in a God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. He believed that God creates and that God resurrects. 
These are two things that are impossible with man. Man never creates anything out of nothing. Only God can create. And we've never tackled the problem of death. We can't bring people back from the dead. And it says that Abraham believed those two impossible feats could be done by God. In Hebrews 11.3, and this is why this whole debate about creation and evolution, and um, I would even say the idea of theistic evolution is more than just a scientific debate. Because in Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that that what is seen so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God has the authority, God has the ability, God has the power to create everything that we have. That's the basis of our faith that that's how the universe began. Paul says Abraham believed this that God creates, that God resurrects. And this is important because we can all say that yeah, we believe God resurrects because we've got stories to base it on. You don't have any stories in Scripture of resurrection happening until we get into the book of Kings. So it says that Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead. And we might would say, hey, I believe God could raise my kid from the dead because I've got all these accounts in Scripture of God doing that type of thing. Abraham believed it without really any example of it ever happening potentially. Now, there may have been cases that just aren't recorded in Scripture, but think about the element of faith. Abraham's walking with his son and he says... You know what? If, 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 if this goes through and Isaac is killed on the altar, God's going to raise him back from the dead. And he has no prior knowledge to think that that's even possible. But he's so ingrained now in this promise, in this covenant, that Isaac is the kid, that everything's going to come from. In his mind, I believe, he creates a scenario that he's never even thought about before. Maybe he'll come back from the dead. Because that's the only way I can think of that this would, this would play out the way that God's saying that it would. We're seeing the element of faith here that Abraham is believing God, that he's capable of the impossible. Uh, one commentator said it's also possible to say that this, um, that this phrase here, that he, um, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, it can also be translated... God calls the things that are not yet as though they were. God calls things that are not yet as though they were. Now, in Genesis 17:5, when Abraham's name changes, God says, I, I've made you a father of many nations. No, he hasn't. Like, there aren't any nations that have come from Abraham at that point yet. But God talks about it as though it's past tense. He says, I've made you a father of many nations. We see the same type of language in Romans 8, 28 through 30, where we're told that we've been called and glorified and justified and sanctified and, and all these things as though it's past tense when it hasn't truly taken place yet in our life. So it's the God who creates, it's the God who resurrects, it's the God who views things from the big picture as though his promises are so sure that he can talk about them as past tense when from our perspective they haven't happened yet. Abraham believed against hope in spite of circumstances. When everything said it's not possible to have kids, it's not possible for these promises to be fulfilled, he believed against that. He hoped in the fact that God was promising these things to him. Without staggering in his faith, he believed in God's ability to do what he said. Now, we talked this morning, did Abraham waver in his faith? We highlighted some examples where it would seem like he did. I think it's important to note what Paul says about that. He says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. I don't think Paul's trying to suggest here that when Abraham left, he never, he never questioned God or he never doubted God. I think what he's saying is that as more truth came out, Abraham's faith increased. Just like we would expect a young Christian, maybe doubt his salvation, and then somebody who's been saved for 30 years to have much stronger faith now than they did when they were first saved. The idea is that his faith grew stronger the older that he got. The more truth he received, his faith 
increased. What we don't ever see is Abraham thinking about going back home. So his faith didn't waver in the sense that he believed God's promises. He just wasn't always well informed about how that was going to play out. But even the acts of him trying to force it through Hagar shows that he was trusting that there were promises that were coming. Now, he, he misapplied it. He didn't handle it appropriately. But his faith gets stronger as he goes. And I think that's what Paul wants to highlight here. It's the same thing we see in the book of Hebrews 11, because there's some guys in there that you're like, man, like I wouldn't consider them hall of faith type of people. But it's an encouragement to us, too, that even in our doubts, even in times where we're questioning God, the, the thing that we want to um, relish in and rejoice in is that God is strengthening our faith every day, every year that goes by. That's why we talked about we want at the end of 2014 to look back and say my faith has increased. I've been intentional to, to uh, increase the truth that I know about God's word so that my faith can increase. That's what Paul's highlighting here. He grew stronger in his faith as he got older. All right, the application for us. The application for us. Let me give you a couple things to write down. One, saving faith is trusting in God's ability and his reliability. Saving faith is trusting in God's ability and his reliability. So it's trusting in God's ability or his power and his reliability or his faithfulness to do what he says. That's the two things that Paul highlights about Abraham's faith. He believed that God could do these things and he believed that God would do these things. You remember that in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say, hey, our God can show up and spare us from this situation, but even if he doesn't, we're going to worship him and we're not going to kneel down to you, Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't have special revelation promise that God was going to spare them from the furnace. God does. And all they can admit is that God can. But Abraham says, God will raise Isaac from the dead or he will provide a sacrifice because Isaac is the promised son and he has to fulfill it that way because he promised it. So it's faith in God's ability and his reliability. And that's what saves us when we put our faith and trust in God's ability that he has accomplished everything for us and his reliability, the faithfulness that when Jesus comes back, we will be justified in his sight. All right, so two questions I want you to ask. Am I basing my salvation on my performance? Am I basing my salvation on my performance or am I basing my salvation on being in Christ? Am I basing my salvation on my performance or am I basing my salvation on being in Christ? Matthew 7, there will be people on Judgment Day that say, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do good works in your name? If we stand before God one day and, and our means of justifying ourselves is to highlight our good works then it's evident of the fact that we were never relying on Christ to begin with. The reason those people are dismissed, I don't know you, is because you've been trying to work your way. You've been trying to earn. You want the direct deposit. And here's your justification. You owe me because I did this and this and this. When we stand before God on Judgment Day, our only hope for justification is to cry out that we're in Christ. That, yes, you know me because I put my faith and trust in what you did for me, not of anything that I've done myself. We'll wrap up with Romans 6, 5 through 11. I'll just read this to you. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So if you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Paul says the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who has delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. As we pray this morning, I want us to, to intentionally be praying for Adam and Tiffany and their family because this situation gives them an opportunity to trust in God's ability to provide and God's reliability that he has promised to provide for their family and to take care of them. Doesn't mean it'll always be the way that they want to have him provide for them, but he has given them assurance that he will take care of them. And we want their faith to increase in this time. We want to be a tool that God uses to help them have their faith increase during this time. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of Romans chapter 4. God, I'm thankful that you give us a concrete example of how Romans chapter 3 looks in everyday life. Father, I'm thankful for the way that you intentionally allowed Abraham's life to play out, that you called him when he wasn't following you. You made promises to him rather than giving him demands to follow. That in his response of faith, you gave him outward signs to show what had already happened on the inside. And Father, we're thankful that he had opportunities to show his true faith as his life played out. God, I pray that we would see that that applies to us, that you rescued us, you called us, not because we had earned the right, but that we were dead in our sins and you rescued us from our sin. That you didn't demand us to do things, but instead you made promises to us. And that accepting those promises, you gave us an outward sign of baptism to show that we have been changed, that we have put our faith and trust in you. And now, Father, help us to recognize that as we live out our life, you give us opportunities, trials, temptations, various difficulties to prove our faith, to show that our faith is genuine. And God, we pray specifically for our, our, our brothers and sisters, uh, Tiffany and Adam and their kids. God, I pray that in the midst of this trial that their faith would rise to the top. God, that you would remind them that you are a God who creates. That you are a God who puts life in situations where there isn't life. That you took an old man and an old woman and you gave them a child. God, I pray that they would believe that you too can provide a job for Adam, that can provide for the family, that can reunite the family together. God, I pray that they would trust in your creative powers during this time. God, help them to trust in your power and your ability. Help them to be reminded of your faithfulness to do the things that you've promised. God, I pray that our church would be faithful to encourage them during this time to draw their attention back to Scripture and the promises that you've made to them. And God, I pray that honestly we would all assess what we're trusting in for our salvation today. God, reveal to us if we're trusting in our ability to perform. or whether we're trusting in the performance of Christ that's already been accomplished for us. And God, I pray for those of us that are believers that we would not despair in our failures. Instead, we would continue to press on, persevere, grow in our faith. For those that aren't saved this morning, Father, I pray that you would uh, wreck their lives with the concept that they can be good enough in your eyes. And God, I pray that you would draw them to repentance. pray that they would recognize that they are ungodly, that they would stop trying to earn your favor, Instead, they would surrender to you who has already earned that favor. Thank you for our salvation this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.